Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. And now, the Sports Buzz with your host, Kevin Wolf, with Andy Loigu. Is anybody alive out there? Is anybody alive out there? Is anybody alive out there? And there you have it as we welcome you to this Friday, January 27th edition of the Sports Buzz episode number 14 coming your way live and local from the great state of New Jersey. Hello there, sports junkies. We have a lot to do on this evening's broadcast as we come to you live on Clubhouse, live on Twitter Spaces, and we make it available for podcast playback through Spotify, Google, and Apple and wherever you go for your daily episodes as we have a lot to hone in on here in the course of this two-hour broadcast as we all get amped up and eager and excited for Championship Sunday in the National Football League in the league where they play for pay as there are four teams standing Four teams left, and two teams will come out on top and get ready for Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona on Sunday, February 12th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as the four remaining teams vying for a Super Bowl appearance are top-tier NFL teams. And we'll start out with... The first game, and that is the San Francisco 49ers with young rookie quarterback Brock Purdy, a great play caller in Shanahan, and a team that is destined to get back to a Super Bowl appearance will take to the football field in Philadelphia to take on an Eagles team that is coming off of a game where they didn't only win, they bludgeoned the New York football Giants by a final score of 38-7 to in a game where... They dominated for 60 consecutive minutes, and the game was over in the first quarter as the Giants had no answers. And then you look at a San Francisco 49ers team that was clicking on all cylinders defensively and then made some big plays in the fourth quarter to put the Cowboys out of their misery as Brock Purdy got some key throws downfield and Kittles was there to make the catch to get the 49ers a victory and a chance to play the top-tier NFC-seeded team in the Philadelphia Eagles. And who better to discuss 
the Philadelphia Eagles, then my broadcast partner, Andy Loigu. Andy, good Friday evening to you, my friend. And good Friday to you. And uh, I'll tell you, that Eagles uh, game last weekend, they just simply went out there. They, they didn't want to let anybody just be hanging around. They, they wanted to establish themselves and, uh, and set the tone early, <laughs> and they certainly did. And uh, the, the Eagles' defense is really going to be the key to what the Eagles do from now as we have the conference championship and Super Bowl. Uh, I think it's the defense, really, that sets the Eagles apart. Uh, there have been several teams who are good on offense, who have mobile quarterbacks and good play calling and do all the right things on offense. But on defense, uh, the, the, the Eagles... Uh, well, for one thing, they lead the league in sacks, and uh, they pressure the quarterback uh, just something awful. You know, Brock Purdy hasn't come up against something yet like this uh, Eagles defense here. And when the 49ers faced the Chiefs this past season, they saw a well-polished team, and the Chiefs were the last ones laughing in a big-time victory, and this is going to be the same-case scenario for the San Francisco 49ers this Sunday, Andy. The Eagles have everything. They got offensive ability they got defensive greatness their special teams is great they're well coached Jalen Hurts is a fine-tuned machine they have a fantastic ground and pound attack and they are just lethal in all phases and the 49ers come into this game evenly matched they have a great offense their defense with their defensive coordinator led by D'Amico Ryans has done a great job a guy who is the leader right now to take a job with the Houston Texans as head coach for the 2023 season and the 49ers right now the biggest question mark surrounding them is Brock Purdy is he going to be able to stand the test of time taking on this Eagle team and is he going to be able to stay the the course and be able to make big plays late to beat the Eagles because it's probably going to come down to a big play Andy late in this football game that determines this outcome and I think the 49ers are going to have to find a way late to answer the call against one of the best defenses in the National Football League. Yeah I think the difference here really is uh now Brock Purdy is going to need the, the uh, 49ers offensive line to to be really sharp at their best, protecting them. And that's the difference between the two quarterbacks here. Uh, Purdy is certainly a, a capable quarterback, and uh, they've shown some film of him when he was at Iowa State in college. He can throw the ball and make the plays. But the thing is, when uh, if the offensive line has trouble handling the Eagles, uh, and the Eagles uh, flush them out of the pocket, make them you know, have to try to buy time and improvise a play, that's where um, Hertz is really good at scrambling or at least uh, being mobile enough that he can run if he sees a running lane. Or There's a plan B with Hertz. You know, Hertz can make something happen out of a broken play. I don't think uh, Purdy, at least I haven't seen him do it yet, you know, have to make something out of a broken play. Usually things have been very smooth for the 49ers on offense and Purdy finds his open receivers. He's got time to find them. He can make his reads and make his throws. But whichever line can disrupt the other offense, I think that's where the game's going to be decided here. 
and also a huge catalyst offensively. He doesn't only run the ball. He can catch the ball. He can be a great tight end. He can be a good receiver when you need him to be, and the ground and pound attack is very hard to stop for the opposing defense, and that is Christian McCaffrey. When the 49ers added Christian McCaffrey to this offense, Andy. They upped their ante big time for vying for Super Bowl play on the football field. And Christian McCaffrey is a big threat. And the Eagles defense is going to have to find ways to tame Christian McCaffrey because they got to keep the 49ers off the field. They got to keep the 49ers away from their ground and pound attack if they want to have a chance at winning this game. And I think the Eagles offense needs to stay on the field longer than the 49ers offense if they want a shot. They got to win the time of possession to win this game because if you let Christian McCaffrey run the ball, it's going to be a long night for that opposing defense. Yeah, this is the second straight week uh, the Eagles are up against uh, a super top-notch, you know, one of the best in the league running back uh, who's from the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. We had... uh, you know, the Giants had Saquon Barkley, who was from uh, Whitehall, Pennsylvania, and uh, Christian McCaffrey's from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. As you may know, the Lehigh Valley's uh, only about 45, 50 miles away from Philly, right across the river from uh, Warren County, New Jersey. So those, uh, in terms of uh, the Hackettstown, Warren County area, th- those are local guys. Uh, you know, they're, they're Phillipsburg's neighbors over there. It's funny, it's funny that two guys from the same area, really, from uh, who live grew up very few miles apart from each other, are such impact running backs in the NFL now, who are, are primarily responsible for getting their teams into the playoffs and where they've come. You know, I can't imagine the 49ers being where they are without McCaffrey. I mean, it was a, it was a real great move for them to acquire him. And, but it is pretty cool as uh, somebody who's followed a lot of the high school sports in that area that uh, these guys from the Lehigh Valley have made such a mark in the NFL. Couldn't agree with you more, Andy. The Eagles come into this game as a two-and-a-half-point favorite. They are the home team. They're 14-3. and three. They were 7-2 and two at home this season. I think when all is said and done, due to the fact that they have home field, due to the fact that that's a very tough environment for a road team to go in and win and play in, especially in a playoff atmosphere, I do give the edge to the Philadelphia Eagles. I think when all is said and done, their talent may supersede the 49ers a little bit in this game, and that may put them over the edge, and I think they're going to do what they can in the fourth quarter to get a big play to put the 49ers on the losing side of this football game. It's a two and a half point spread. I think it's going to be a high scoring game. I sense this game going to be 31 27 Eagles by four over the Niners. Yeah, I, I kind of look at it as a, a lower scoring game, uh, more kind of like the day, the game that the 49ers had with the Cowboys last week. Uh, because the defenses are so good. I mean, uh, you know, you've got excellent defenses on both these teams, and that's really what's uh, got them here. So I would say uh, a little bit lower scoring, unless there's some crazy wild big plays. <laughs> you never know how those are going to happen. Uh, you know, there's often some uh, some funny ways that 
the ball bounces and all of a sudden you have a quick uh, touchdown. And uh, <laughs> they happen in all kinds of ways we can't imagine sometimes. But if things kind of go according to Hoyle, I see a lower scoring game, but still a, a very, very big game, yeah. And competitive to say the least, they will battle test one another for 60 minutes and it'll be a game that will be hard fought and go right down to the wire and that'll be 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon, the first of a doubleheader for NFL Championship Sunday and that'll be on Fox 5. The second game will be 6.30 Sunday night on CBS as we mute the television to avoid Tony Romo boring us for three hours with the play by play of Jim Nance, but listen, Andy, the Cincinnati Bengals went out there and made a statement against the Buffalo Bills and proved that they're worthy to be playing in the AFC Championship game as Joe Burrow carved through that Bills defense and really went out there and just dominated the game from the quarterback position for 60 minutes and the big playability of Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Boyd and mixing with the ground game was too much for the Bills to handle and the Bengals now who find themselves 3-0 and against the Kansas City Chiefs every game has come down to a field goal finds themselves trying to get back to a Super Bowl for the second consecutive year in a row, and they'll have to go to Burrowhead in Kansas City to do that this week and defeat the Kansas City Chiefs in a game where Patrick Mahomes, will he be 100% healthy with a high ankle sprain injury, and will he be able to go out there and show his true worth and ability for 60 minutes to get the Chiefs into a Super Bowl, or or will that ankle be problematic and give an advantage to the Cincinnati Bengals? That is yet to be determined, but the one thing I can tell you is we are in for another classic matchup this Sunday night out of the AFC for the conference championship game between the Bengals and the Chiefs. I think Burrow could be the difference in this uh, matchup here. One, because he's healthy, uh, but two... Uh, you know, he never ceases to amaze me with uh, how cool and calm and collected he is and how smart he is, how he, uh, he just makes the right plays and he's a great leader. And uh, he's really the guy who's uh, he's, he's the man for the Cincinnati Bengals. And, of course, uh, Mahomes, on the other hand, with a high ankle sprain, uh, uh, that's going to take away a lot of his mobility. And, and mobility is a big part of his game and in being able to make something out of broken plays. Uh, and uh, Cincinnati also defensively, I mean, they, uh, they're they like mad scientists out there. You never know uh, where the rush is coming from. Uh, they're full of surprises uh, with their coverages. If anybody can cover uh, Kelsey, it's the, the Cincinnati Bengals. You got Hubbard, you got a Wouzier, you got some key significant defensive guys there that are fast. So you're right about that. Cincinnati's defense can be very problematic, but their offensive line, Andy, has had some question marks, and it didn't fail against the Buffalo Bills, but when you have a front four as strong as the Kansas City defense has with uh, Chris Jones leading the way there, that could be problematic for an offensive line that has some question marks. So Kansas City's defense can uh, be problematic in this game for the Bengals and Joe Burrow's offensive game plan. Yeah, it's certainly uh, 
that's a valid point. And Kansas City's uh, a multi-dimensional team, as are all four of these teams that we're looking at. Now, there's a reason these are the last four teams that are still playing. Uh, you know, they're 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 good in every which way, which makes these matchups so fascinating. It really does. And listen, I get the Bengals are 3-0 and against the Kansas City Chiefs, but we know that Arrowhead is an extremely tough environment to go play in. This is the fifth AFC Championship game that Andy Reid is coaching in with Patrick Mahomes at the quarterback position. They are a very tough team to solve. The ankle sprain would concern me from a Chiefs perspective, Andy, but I can't see Andy Reid with all all of the success he's had losing four consecutive times to the Cincinnati Bengals and losing at home at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City or Getcha Stadium to be exact. I just can't see that happening. Yeah, well, actually, uh, you know, it's going to be based on uh, on the teams, uh, the way they play this game. You know, the, uh, the past history is... It's fun to look at, and yeah, you may think Cincinnati has Kansas City's number, but uh, but uh, this game will be this game. Uh, the, those players aren't going to be thinking about that when they take the field on Sunday. It's going to be the team that plays the best today, and that's uh, that's the way it should be. And listen, the Chiefs are coming off of a win against the Jacksonville Jaguars team that was fun. They were a great storyline. They were the true Cinderella special for Doug Peterson and company. The Chiefs They played a sloppy first half, dominated the second half. When uh, Mahomes went out, Henny came in. What does he do? He gets a touchdown to the end zone to keep the Chiefs in the game so the Chief fan didn't have to panic when Mahomes came back in as uh, Henny was able to get the job done and the Chiefs came away with a 27-20 victory. And then, listen, the Eagles, they went out there last Saturday night and they dominated in all phases. They beat the Giants, and they find themselves in a very important spot with uh, Jalen Hurts and Nick Sirianni as head coach, and the city of brotherly love, I'm sure, is going to be amped up and raring to go, and what a better storyline than Kyle Shanahan and the San Francisco 49ers and what he's done with this franchise, and really, it's been about Brock Purdy and the amazing throwing ability and offensive catalyst that he's been, but it's also been about the big play ability of Christian McCaffrey. So all four teams are amped up and ready to play, Andy, and all four teams, you can make a case for playing one another in a Super Bowl in Glendale, Arizona, for Super Bowl 57, whether it's the Bengals and the Eagles, 49ers, Bengals, Chiefs, Eagles, or Chiefs, 49ers, any one of those matchups, it's going to make for must-watch television. Yeah, one thing that concerns me about uh, Mahomes, he may be able to move around a little bit, but uh, he's going to have a hard time planting his foot when he throws. He may be sailing throws and... uh, throwing some incompletions or interceptions. We'll have to see how he performs. But uh, that's one thing that concerns me about a high ankle sprain as compared to low ankle sprain. It, it could affect his throwing. And, and you know, Mahomes, uh, his throwing accuracy is a big key to the Chiefs. 
Yes, it is, Andy. And that's where they succeed at their best when he's making the big plays and throwing the ball in deep yardage and big yardage situations. And listen, the Bengals are a very cocky team right now. They're playing with a chip on their shoulder. They're sending a message to the NFL. You didn't want to give us a better seed. You didn't want us to finish that Week 17 game. Well, we'll show you how high and mighty we are by going out there and being dominant. And they didn't only win last week, Andy. They sort of sent the message to the Buffalo Bills last week that it wasn't their year in Orchard Park and it wasn't their time to get to Super Bowl and the Bills were not focused in that game their offense looked problematic the defense had no answers for the high octane Bengal offense and Snowy Orchard Park was friendly to Cincinnati and Joe Burrow and company and the Bengals had all the right answers for a Bills team that was not prepared and ready to go last Sunday. And we talked about the Bills having some issues and having yeah, some flaws look, this season. They didn't look right going into that game. So any final thoughts on these games, Andy? Well, you know, uh, George Kittle is kind of fun with their tight end. And uh, he's also given the 49ers another dimension there uh, with some of the plays. Yeah, did you see that one catch where he juggled it a bit and nobody stayed oh. with it? And that was just a spectacular catch. Anytime the 49ers needed a big player or first down, they were able to get it in the latter part of the second half of that football game last week. And listen, kudos to the Dallas Cowboys and Dan Quinn with the defensive game plan they had in that game. That defense was unbelievably tough throughout 50 minutes of that football game. The problem was when the 49ers needed a big play late, they had the playmakers there and they had the right guys in place to make those plays and put the game away. The Dallas Cowboys played tough. They played hard, but Dak Prescott in a big time yardage situation, Andy, just couldn't answer the call when he had to. The big playability for Dallas late in that football game was not there for them when they needed it. Yeah, Dallas uh, hasn't won a Super Bowl since 1995. A lot of Dallas fans in their 20s probably don't even remember seeing a Dallas uh, Super Bowl championship. And listen, Jerry Jones stated in the press conference after the game, one of few general managers or owners to do press conferences after a game, as he loves to be in front of the media, he loves to voice his opinion, he loves to give you his thoughts on that particular game and what's inside his head. He pretty much said the entire team was sick and he was sick and he couldn't stomach the end of that game and the way the results turned out for his team. But listen, Mike McCarthy got a playoff win for the Dallas Cowboys. He's gotten the Cowboys to the postseason in two consecutive years. We know that Sean Payton is still lurking in Dallas, but Jerry Jones sort of put that to rest, basically telling you that Mike McCarthy was going to remain the head coach for the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys came out yesterday and told you that there's going to be some significant coaching changes in this offseason. We don't know if Kellen Moore will be gone or not. We do know that Dan Quinn will definitely be back uh, coaching the defense. I think that Mike McCarthy really needs to consider turning the play calling over to himself or finding somebody else that's going to be able to fine-tune Dak in big-time situations and get Dak to excel when the Cowboys need a big play because some of the plays 
with this Cowboy team, particularly in the game against San Francisco, were very questionable play calls, and that falls on the offensive coordinator, Kellen Moore, and it falls on Dak for not going out there and producing when he had to. And another interesting point, talking about uh, San Francisco and McCaffrey, you know, Sanford, it seems like a long time ago now, but they only started out 3-3, and they were struggling. And then once they made uh, McCaffrey an offensive starter, they're on this 12-game win streak here. And I don't think it happens if they didn't have McCaffrey there. He may be able to point to that guy as the guy who... Uh, Gets them in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, because uh, it's really San Francisco started out struggling. And it makes you wonder, Andy, if Brock Purdy would have had the success we've seen him have if McCaffrey wasn't a teammate on this team. Would the Brock Purdy storyline be different going into this game if Christian McCaffrey was still a Carolina Panther and in an offseason? That's a fascinating storyline to wonder if Purdy would still be as good as he is without Christian McCaffrey front and center with the ground and pound attack. Once McCaffrey started playing, the 49ers came up from like 19th in the NFL in points per game, 18th in yards per game. Uh, They came up to like uh, second in the league in uh, points uh, per game and uh, yards per game. Uh, Statistically, you could see the the numbers increase uh, once McCaffrey was was in the middle of it all. So, Andy, you're a confident Eagle fan. You like what you've seen from this team. What's the concern level for you watching this 49ers team, knowing what a great play caller and schemer Kyle Shanahan is and seeing what they do week in and week out and the threat that Kittles can be and Debo Samuel and Ayuk and just all the weapons that they have offensively. How concerned are you for this football game with your Philadelphia Eagles? We know you got the home field. We know you got the fans backing you. What's the worry level? Like any game against a good team, yeah, you respect the opponent, certainly. But uh, what uh, the Eagles have going for them, I think, is uh, they're able to uh, put on a strong pass rush without blitzing. They still have the defensive coverages, and uh, they storm in on the quarterback, make the quarterback uh, either get the sack or or a hurry or a a throw that's... uh, (laughs) Uh, that, that plays right into the Eagles' hands. You know, the Eagles come up with a lot of interceptions as a result of the strong pass rush. It's it's really uh, the defense of the Eagles uh, that gives me confidence because, uh, you know, San Francisco has just as dynamic an offense as the Eagles do. Uh, the Eagles you know, may have a quarterback who can think on the run maybe a little better, but, uh, you know, Hertz hasn't been a premier quarterback for all that long either. I mean, he... Going into the season, people weren't big believers in Hurts. So it was just uh, he, he, he convinced people just with his play, but uh, he's certainly far better than the Hurts, who was a rookie with the Eagles last year. So, uh, you know, the Eagles have uh, certainly they're capable in every aspect of the, of the game, but to overcome San Francisco, it, it's, uh, the Eagles are going to have to dominate the line play. Uh, that's uh, that's where I think the Eagles uh, have a shot because uh, if you uh, 
break down a team's line and put pressure on the quarterback, uh, that's a good way to win. So what you're saying is the Eagles are going to win this game defensively. They're going to make a big stop late. They're going to find a way to tame Brock Purdy. They're going to find a way to tame McCaffrey. And their defense is going to be what puts them in a Super Bowl. Yeah, I think uh, their defense is uh, really what's uh, going to carry them in this game uh, and hold San Francisco to a low score. And talk about Jalen Hurts, Andy, and the success this year. He had 3,701 yards in the air, 22 touchdowns, only through six interceptions. He had a remarkable season as starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, yeah. Line play has a lot to do with it. It's much easier to run an efficient offense uh, if you've got time for the place to develop and for the quarterback to read the defense. And A.J. Yeah, Brown, makes- too, has had a big year. Yeah. 88 receptions, 1,496 yards, 11 touchdowns. He's been a huge catalyst offensively from a receiving perspective for the Eagles. And when you look at Brock Purdy, Andy, third-string quarterback, last pick in the draft, boy, he's made a huge, huge statement. He's got 14 touchdowns and only two picks in seven starts, and he's really put this team on his back, and he's made a name for himself under the play-calling system that Kyle Shanahan has in place with the San Francisco 49ers and the job that John Lynch has done as general manager to really put a winning product year in and year out on the football field. Imagine the Jets had seven chances to draft him, and they they didn't go for him. Uh, even as a possible uh, second option, if their guy who they were banking on didn't come through. You know, it's interesting this week, uh, they dug up some film. There's a game between Iowa State and Oklahoma in college uh, when uh, Purdy quarterbacked Iowa State and uh, Hurts quarterbacked Oklahoma. It was a 42-41 game where uh, it wasn't decided until Iowa State went for two to try to win the game at the end. Both quarterbacks played great in that game, and... Uh, Certainly, if Purdy could do what he did with a team like Iowa State, you know, you wonder why uh, he could go through the draft undrafted the way he did. Uh, it does make sense to me. Uh, he was a good quarterback at a big school. I guess the NFL scouts just weren't on their game that night. <laughs> there was something that they didn't like about him, uh, but uh, it obviously, now that you've seen what he can do in the NFL, Um, whatever doubts they had about him proved to be not true. And it's really going to be a compelling matchup, Andy. It really is. It is going to draw eyes to the television set. Whether you're a huge... 49ers fan or a huge Eagles fan or if really you don't even follow these two teams but you're just a hardcore NFL fan your eyes are going to be drawn to the television set for both of these matchups as we are set for some classic finishes in what has really been a compelling NFL season and what has been a good postseason thus far oh yeah it's been a marvelous postseason really And speaking of the New York Jets, before we veer off into other areas of thought-provoking, hard-hitting sports talk on this evening's broadcast, they go out there, they fire their offensive coordinator, LaFleur, 
They decide now to bring in Nathaniel Hackett. So all of the sports media critics, all of your local radio stations, whether that's ESPN New York or WFAN, are saturating the hardcore sports fan with Aaron Rodgers talk constantly. And last week, we came on this broadcast and we said how we didn't think Aaron Rodgers was going to be a fit in New York, but maybe the Jets know something that we don't know internally because the hiring of Nathaniel Hackett and the success Hackett had with Rodgers and the relationship they had was key for that winning success in Green Bay for the three years that Hackett was there. That would make you wonder now, Andy, if Aaron Rodgers is destined to put on the green and white and come to East Rutherford, New Jersey and be a starting quarterback for the New York Jets to try and headline this team as being a competitor in the AFC, a team that grew with some pieces this year, a team that had a great defense, a team that had some offensive playmakers, but their biggest sore spot was the quarterback position, and who can fix that but a Hall of Fame quarterback in Aaron Rodgers and a quarterback who has aged over the years and hasn't been able to seal the deal when it matters the most the last several years in getting key postseason wins and leading the Packers to another championship. Well, the NFL also has a long history of uh, big-name quarterbacks uh, don't know when it's time to quit, (laughs) and they sign on with another team uh, for the last couple of years of their career, and it usually does not end well. You know, Aaron Rodgers. A la Favre when he was a Jet, and then he went to the Vikings and played a stint there in Minnesota, got him to the postseason, but it didn't bode well for Favre after he left Green Bay. We saw that. The only guy it really went well for was Tom Brady because he had all the success with Belichick in New England, and then he says, you know what? I'm tired of the Pats. I'm tired of the franchise. I'm tired of the organization. Let me go take my talents to Tampa, and he goes and wins them a Super Bowl. He should have ended his career right there while he was on top. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, after this year, now he's going to say, well, I wouldn't want to retire on a season that ended like that. But, well, the, the next one may end the same way. He had an opportunity to retire on top after that championship with Tampa Bay. And it's a shame he didn't, uh, he didn't call it quits then. It would have been a much better send-off for him. So, Andy, when you heard about the Nathaniel Hackett hire, was uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, ringing in your ear a little bit as a possible quarterback for the New York Jets? Because I'll tell you right now, the New York outlet here in the New York metro area where I reside has been flooded for 48 hours already with nonstop Aaron Rodgers talk wall-to-wall. And it's really getting a little tiring. I get he's a great quarterback. I get he won a Super Bowl. I get he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. I understand all of that. But do the Jets really want to go down the Aaron Rodgers road to get them to the promised land? I think Derek Carr would be a great fit. I think Garoppolo would be a much better suitable guy to lead this team. Is Aaron Rodgers really the answer? I don't really think so. And Hackett, he came from the Denver Broncos, right? And he's from a coaching family, so uh, I'm sure he interviews well. <laughs> he didn't exactly uh, set the world on fire when he was with the Broncos, uh, Hackett. 
No, he didn't. And you know what? Sometimes when you're a coordinator and you take a head coaching position, it doesn't work out. You're not necessarily fit to be a head coach, but you're great to be an offensive coordinator. And I think Nathaniel Hackett was in over his head. I think he couldn't do a lot of his offensive success that he wanted to do with Wilson because he had to focus on other areas of the game that he necessarily wouldn't focus on if he was in charge of just the offense and the quarterback back and I think it was the wrong hire at the wrong time for the Denver Broncos and we know he didn't do good as a head coach in this league and it was short-lived but we do know that he has excelled as an offensive coordinator with the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers so the Jets are looking at the strength of the offensive coordinator position with Hackett thinking that he could come in and retool a quarterback to lead this team to success I just question if Aaron Rodgers is the right fit at the right time for a team that's made strides but still needs to grow in other areas Hackett's dad uh, was the offensive coordinator for the Jets 20 years ago and from 2001 to 2004 uh, that was Paul Hackett he was a West Coast offense guy just like uh, Nathaniel Hackett is and West Coast offense is a good offense. I mean, Joe Montana perfected it with Bill Walsh back in the 80s, and uh, they won four Super Bowl championships. Uh, Andy Reid, when he came to the Eagles, put in the West Coast offense, and it worked real well with uh, Donovan McNabb. But uh, the Jets have the offensive personnel that can make the uh, West Coast offense click. I would think it would be better – to evaluate the players you have before you try to install uh, a newfangled offense that uh, may not be suited to the talent that the Jets have. Well, it's going to be interesting, Andy, to see how all this plays out in Florham Park over the offseason because the owner, Woody Johnson, has voiced his concern for the quarterback position with his franchise, and he said he's willing to go out there and spend any amount necessary money-wise to get the quarterback to retool this offense and get them some winning success. So the owner has spoken He's a little disgruntled these days. We saw the Jets make some strides, but they weren't able to get to the postseason. And when all is said and done, the NFL is a business and you need to produce week in and week out. So we're going to have a lot to hone in on in this offseason with the Jets to see which direction they go in for the quarterback position. And then another move is Frank Wright is coming back to the NFL as the Carolina Panthers hire him to hope that he can retool the quarterback and bring the offense system that you thought he was going to have with Andrew Luck that didn't really work out with Matt Ryan, hoping he can bring that type of system to Carolina and retool the quarterback there to get the Panthers back to some winning success. But you have to feel bad for Steve Wilkes in this situation because the Panthers played tough for him. They played gritty, Andy. And when the season was over, you felt like the team really was in for Wilkes becoming the head coach, but the owner decides to go in a different direction with the general manager and goes with the experience on the sideline with Frank Wright, hoping that he can retool the quarterback. Well, Frank Wright had a very interesting career as a player. Uh, He was involved in some historic uh, comeback wins, both uh, with the Buffalo Bills and uh, with the University of Maryland, there's a game where they came back from like 40 to nothing against Miami and beat them. Uh, and Reich has done a good job coaching. I think 
He is an inspiring guy who could help a team. He's had a good career. He went to four Super Bowls as a player with the Buffalo Bills. You know, those were years that they lost uh, the Super Bowl. They, but he won, a field, he won a Super Bowl with the Eagles after the 2017 season. He was the uh, offensive coordinator for them. And, you know, Reich helped uh, Carson Wentz quite a bit, and uh, Nick Foles and Foles had to take over the Eagles. You know, Reich was... Reich was a part of the last Eagles Super Bowl championship, so so I like the guy. And uh, I think you know, things will work out well with him. Yeah, now he has to turn around the Carolina Panthers and make them a dominant force in the NFC South. And one more uh, quick coaching hire from an assistant offensive perspective. He was fired from the Jets, Mike LaFleur, but he wasn't unemployed for a long time as he will go to Sean McVay's team and he will become offensive coordinator for the L.A. Rams. So a lot happening in the NFL, coaching hires and four teams vying for Super Bowl play. The 49ers will take on the Eagles at 3 o'clock from Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia and the Chiefs and the Bengals will battle it out at Getcha Stadium at 6.30 p.m. in Kansas City for a trip to the Super Bowl on the line. Any final thoughts regarding the NFL, Andy, before we move ahead on this evening's broadcast? We can move on here. You're listening to the Sports Buzz with Kevin Wolf and Andy Loigu. Passionate sports talk for the hardcore fan is our daily motto. Sportsbuzzshow1 at gmail.com. Sportsbuzzshow, the number one at gmail.com. As we come to you live from the Garden State, the great state of New Jersey, and we are live on the World Wide Web on Clubhouse, also on Twitter Spaces, and we make it available for podcast playback through Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever you go for your daily audio craving. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we will have much more to talk about on this Friday, January 27th edition of the Sports Buzz. The life of every child is precious. If you care for a child or teenager with a disability and have limited income and resources, they may qualify for monthly cash payments through the Supplemental Security Income Program, or SSI. Call Social Security at 1-800-772-1213 or visit ssa.gov slash ssikids to learn more. That's ssa.gov slash ssikids. Message produced by Social Security at U.S. taxpayer expense. Did you receive a call or message that mentioned Social Security and demanded immediate action? Did the caller know your social security number or other personal information and tell you that your social security number had been used in connection with the crime? Did you feel worried that your social security number might be suspended, your bank account might be frozen or seized, or you could be arrested? That is not the Social Security Administration. Social Security will not threaten you, demand your personal information or instant payment, email or text you pictures or documents, or use a real government official's name to gain your trust. Social Security does not accept payments by gift card, prepaid debit card, internet currency, or by mailing cash. Criminals use these forms of payment because they are hard to trace. Do not be fooled. Hang up. Ignore them. Report this criminal activity to the Social Security Administration Office of the Inspector General at OIG.SSA.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. 
and welcome back to the Sports Buzz. Passionate sports talk for the hardcore fan is our daily motto as we urge you to spread the word about great sports talk on a week-in, week-out basis. You're not going to get this on commercial radio. You're not going to get this on the subscription service of Sirius XM Satellite Radio, but you're guaranteed to get it on the World Wide Web, and you're guaranteed to get it in podcast form. And before we move on in this broadcast, there's no local NBA action tonight. But there are a few hockey games taking place currently in the second period. The Islanders lead the Red Wings 2 to nothing as the Islanders try to find their winning success as they're 23 and 22 and they look to try and make a run there in the Eastern Conference division. And then when you look at the other action in the NHL, we have the Devils taking on the Dallas Stars and at the end of one Dallas leads two to nothing the Devils are off to a great start they got 33 wins on this season and they've been a fun team to watch and observe over the course of this season thus far and the Rangers are taking on the Vegas Golden Knights in the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden, 8.22 to go in the third period there, and the Rangers have a 2-1 to one lead. So those are your scores for hockey this evening. And now, Andy, it was another busy week in the world of sports as baseball became front and center as the writers elected... Scott Rowland to the Hall of Fame for the 2023 ballot. And Scott Rowland was a huge catalyst. He had some great success with the Reds, the Blue Jays, the Cardinals, and he was also a Philadelphia Phillies for a majority of his career in baseball. And he had a total of 2,038 games played. He had 7,398 at-bats. He had 1,211 runs, and he had 2,077 hits, and he had a total of 316 home runs in his career on the baseball field. Well, I certainly liked uh, Roland when he was with the Phillies. He came up through the Phillies farm system and he was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1997 and he was a gold glove third baseman. He was uh, as good as any of them and uh, he made the, the plays coming in on slow rollers. He'd field the hot shots down the line, had a great arm. Uh, he's everything you'd want in the field as well. Yeah, I don't have a problem with him getting to the uh, Hall of Fame, but I think there are a couple of more guys uh, on that ballot who could have got in too. I did hear uh, Mad Dog really being Mad Dog, and you know how he loves his San Francisco Giants players, and he made the case for uh, Jeff Kent, and he certainly was right. Uh, you know, if you compare uh, stats with uh, Fred McGriff, who, who got in earlier, another one who uh, should have gotten in a long time ago, but, you know, the crime dog. In uh, RBIs, McGriff had 1,500 RBIs, and so did uh, Kent. Uh, McGriff had 15.50 and Ken had 15.18. That's hardly any difference at all. And Ken hit uh, more base hits. And 
Kent uh, hit more home runs than any other second baseman who ever played the game, the biggest uh, home run hitter of a uh, second baseman of all time. And uh, as Mad Dog was saying, too, he was, uh, he was a good second baseman. He certainly was no liability uh, in the infield. He, he made the plays he should make, and uh, he, he played well. He, he played in the World Series, uh, and, the, you know, the Giants had Kent in there. Uh, and uh, Kent was, uh, in my book, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer. I, I agree with everything that a Mad Dog was really fired up. When and the thing is, too, that. this was his final year on the ballot. He only received 181 votes and 46% of those votes went to him. So the fact that the writers really didn't consider him more in this tally for this year's Hall of Fame entrance is really something to be disgusted about when it comes to the athleticism of Jeff Kent and really the impact he had on the sport. He was a top-tier player for many years another guy you can look at is Todd Helton he had 281 votes fell short of the 75% needed to be considered into the Hall of Fame with 72.2% and when you thought of Todd Helton you thought of the Colorado Rockies you thought of the home runs and you thought of the, the power he had in his whole entire career he was a Colorado Rocky so for that one team he played in 2,247 games he had 7,962 at bats 1,401 runs and and he had 2,519 hits, and he fell short of the 75% threshold of getting in. That's a little concerning from the Todd Helton stats we just looked at, why he didn't have a shot to get into this year's Hall of Fame. Some detractors that say that a lot of those numbers are accumulated in Colorado and Coors Field, which is the altitude, the thin air, the way the ball flies in the thin air, that makes it a band box. So you feel but, that the fact that his career was played at Coors Field for the entire time really hampered his chances of getting nominated for the Hall of Fame? In the minds of some people, although I saw him play at Chase Stadium against the Mets and uh, and in Philly, and he was a good hitter on the road too. So <laughs> if you're a good hitter both on the road and at home, uh, you're a Hall of Famer. Another guy who donned himself in a Met uniform for a while was Billy Wagner. He received 265 votes, fell short of the 75% threshold needed to get into the Hall of Fame by the writers as he had 68.1%. But Billy Wagner definitely would be worthy of Hall of Fame caliber uh, talk when it comes to the Hall of Fame because he was definitely a reliever that was bantied about a lot in his playing days. Well, Billy Wagner had some amazing uh, relief pitching stats uh, that definitely put him among the uh, all-timers. Also, Andrew Jones, Andy. Andrew Jones, who was a big-time premier player for the Atlanta Braves, and the success he had was... Fantastic. And 
1,204 runs, 1,289 RBIs, 152 stolen bases, an on-base percentage of 337. He had 7,599 at-bats, 1,953 hits, and 434 home runs. And those numbers don't get you into the Hall of Fame. Those numbers don't get you to the 75 percent threshold 226 votes for him and he didn't meet the threshold and you can make a case for gary sheffield too a 500 home run hitter but sheffield would worry you because of the steroids and the fact that a lot of people felt that he was doing steroids and that could have tarnished him a little bit if you do steroids you don't deserve to get into the hall of fame here's some billy wagner numbers uh of all pitchers with at least 800 innings pitched, Wagner had 11.9 Ks per nine innings, which is really awesome. 32% strikeout rate of the total batters faced, and those are the highest in Major League history. They even eclipse uh, Mariano Rivera there. Opposing hitters only hit for a 187 average against them. That's the lowest in MLB history for pitchers with 800 innings pitched. And he also had the lowest hits per nine innings ratio in history for pitchers with 800 innings pitched. So, uh, you know, Wagner did some awesome things that he should really be in the Hall of Fame for. And then you have Jimmy Rollins, 50 votes. He only got 12.9% towards him. Bobby Abreu, 60 votes, 15.4%. Manny Ramirez, Andy, received 129 votes, but only 33% went his way, and A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, a Texas Ranger, a New York Yankee, 139 votes, 35.7. We knew him with the performance-enhancing drugs, so A-Rod, you wouldn't have thought would have gotten in because he did have some human growth hormone in his system back in the day, which wouldn't qualify him, in my opinion, to be Hall of Fame caliber. Well, Rollins, I can tell you from all the times I saw him, he was a terrific defensive shortstop. Talk about a guy uh, playing every day, never taking days off. He he had over 700 at-bats per season. He drove in runs. I mean, there were days when he batted third. He wasn't always the leadoff hitter. And uh, he batted third a lot because he could hit the ball out. He had an MVP season. Uh, Rollins you could definitely make a Hall of Fame case for and then next year uh, Chase Utley uh, comes into the mix uh, gets on the ballot so uh, there, there's a couple of guys there I'll, I could make a strong case for. David Wright, too. He'll debut on the Hall of Fame ballot next year. And Jose Reyes will also be on the Hall of Fame ballot next year. And listen, David Wright, you think of the New York Mets. You don't only think of Mike Piazza. You think of David Wright. David Wright was a big face of the franchise for the New York Mets for a very long time. So it's going to be interesting to see how the voters vote next year for David Wright and if he'll meet that threshold to get into the Hall of Fame. And with Wright, too, it's a shame he couldn't uh, play out his career. You know, he had uh, stenosis, uh, and uh, so he couldn't compile some of the numbers he could have. If You know, it's a question of what could have been with him. But as far as uh, what he did on the field, uh, they certainly got some impressive numbers. 
Absolutely, Andy. So it's going to be interesting to see next year how it all plays out. Would you have justified any of those other names? Jeff Kent, Todd Helton, Andrew Jones. Would any of those guys, in your opinion, meet the 75% threshold to get on the ballot? Kent certainly, and Helton, yeah, and Billy Wagner. I know you can't get all of them in in one year, but uh, I would hope... uh, uh, you know, Wagner and Kent, uh, although they had to go a different route to get it. And uh, looking at Wright's uh, numbers, uh, it says here he had 155 home runs and 624 RBIs, but uh, considering the amount of time he played, that's an average of 26 homers and 104 RBIs per season uh, for David Wright. And another guy, too, we didn't mention, Carlos Beltran. He's one of the few guys who's done like 300 homers. Yeah, he had 9,768 at-bats. He had 1,582 runs, 2,725 hits, and he had 1,587 RBIs. And throughout his career, he hit a total of 435 home runs, and he appeared in 2,500 and 86 games on the baseball field, and he falls short of being nominated to get into the Hall of Fame as he received 181 votes and only 46.5% of that vote for this year's ballot. Well, you know, I was thinking big picture here. Now, there have been a few guys in recent years who waited forever, or in some cases, in Gil Hodges' uh case, you know, posthumously he got into the Hall of Fame after people had argued for him for years and years. Uh, last year, Tony Oliva got in. Uh, uh, I was starting to think that he wasn't going to make it. And uh, I'm old enough to have seen Tony Oliva. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story about one game with Tony Oliva where he had two home runs in a game and the same fan caught both baseballs. Just think of the odds of that happening if you have uh, tickets in right field as a fan, that somebody's going to hit two home run balls right to you. And I remember he was uh, showing the two balls off in the scoreboard, you know, f- video showed him there, uh, the whole deal. Uh, that was pretty cool. There's a Tony Oliva m- memory that I have. But uh, some of these guys, uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, Jeff Ken, I'm sure, will get in, but... Uh, It's a shame that some guys have to wait the way they do, you know. It really is. And uh, a majority of your career, Andy, you've been a sports journalist. Do you think the baseball writers are fair when they make these decisions concerning the Hall of Fame? And, And really, what do you think in their eyes goes into it? Is it mainly just the stats and what they did on the field as a player year in and year out? Or is there more that goes on behind the scenes that makes them make the decision they made? I think we often are influenced. Well, look at Kurt Schilling. Uh, uh, Kurt Schilling, you could make a case for him to be a Hall of Fame pitcher. Certainly, he's uh, up there among the best uh, pitchers. But uh, I think uh, Schilling rubbed a lot of people the wrong way uh, with his politics, and I don't think a lot of reporters got along with him very well, and I think that's held uh, Schilling back. Well, one thing that amazes me is how how few players have gotten in with a unanimous vote. I mean, there were people, baseball writers, actually credentialed baseball writers covering baseball on a daily basis with a beat. You know, they're, they're, they're guys who are beat writers who are on the job covering baseball every day. That's 
something that's supposed to qualify them. But how could somebody vote against Willie Mays? How could somebody vote against Tom Seaver? I mean, uh, even the, the cream of the cream who get in, there was somebody out there who did not vote for them. And sometimes it makes you shake your head. Who who could not have voted for uh, some of these guys, you know? Yeah, do they watch yeah. any of the games? Are they witnessing what we're witnessing on a day-in, day-out basis? Because everything sometimes we witnessed wonder. proved their Hall of Fame worthy. Yeah, now somebody like Jason Stark, you know, he's a legitimate uh, voter. And some of these guys who... Uh, who share uh, their observations on TV, particularly on MLB Network. They're legitimate, qualified guys. But I think sometimes these people do let personal things get in the way of the way they vote. Sorry to say. I'm glad to see that Scott Rowland got in. But, you know, when you look at somebody like Todd Helton or Andrew Jones or or Jeff Kent, you just scratch your head with all the stats we just went over. How did they meet the 75% threshold? I think some people may have the thinking in their minds that they don't want to vote for too many people in a given year. They may think, well, the Hall of Fame should only have one or two new people go in there every year. They may have preconceived notions like that, like other players. Yeah, they're good, but they can wait. I think they probably have that kind of attitude. You just vote on whether a player is deserving or not. I don't think you should place any limitations on how many people make it in a given year. I thought last year was wonderful when uh, when we had several guys getting in and I was watching all the speeches on TV and everything. Uh, It was terrific. It's a shame if somebody does not get into the Hall of Fame, which has happened some years. When you look at these players by position, Andy, like does it surprise you that He's the 18th third baseman elected to the Hall Roland, or would you think more center fielders would be elected or a left fielder or right fielder? Do you think position is key, too, to getting elected into the Hall of Fame? I think sometimes a case is made. It's only recently that uh, infielders, other than first baseman, you know, but second, short, and third base uh, were not always power positions like uh, – at one time, uh, Brooks Robinson was the all-time home run leader for third baseman, but since then, uh, many third basemen have passed him for uh, home runs. Now, there's other areas that Brooks Robinson uh, still, I think, was the best third baseman of all time. But as far as power, uh, you know, look at all the third basemen who we've had recently who are tremendous power hitters. Uh, it's become a power position. And uh, I think prior to Brooks Robinson, I think there was only one or two third basemen in like the first hundred years of baseball who got into the Hall of Fame. Uh, We have more of them coming in now because, you know, the Manny Machados of the world and Greg Nettles. And, you know, I can think of a lot of really good third basemen now who also have the power. George Brett was a third baseman and he was a 3,000 career hits guy who put together some awesome batting averages. A lot of third basemen have gotten in on their hitting, which is something that didn't happen before Brooks Robinson. Any final Hall of Fame thoughts, Andy? Uh, we just got to get these guys in there. We, we've got some deserving players who are now being forced to wait. And uh, I think in the case of uh, Kent and uh, Billy Wagner, if you look at their stats historically, you know, Kent is number one in home runs by a second baseman. That should get him in. Wagner, too. You know, Wagner had some all-time numbers that nobody else could match. Uh, 
that ought to get you in, you know. Basically, you've established who the best players are and anybody who's comparable to the best players, uh, you know, somebody who was a dominant player in their era. Uh, I know a lot of these categories are a little bit vague, but... Yeah, Wagner yeah. played 15 years in the league, too, Andy. He yeah, was 47-40. Right. and 40. He had a career 231 earn-run average, and he had 422 saves, and he had 1,196 strikeouts, and he pitched 903 innings. You're going to tell me that that's not worthy of Hall of Fame material? Yeah, like his uh, strikeouts per nine innings and uh, his opponent's batting average, things like that. They're they're the best ever for a reliever. Yeah, and some of his best outings were with the New York Mets when he was a Met, when he put the Met uniform on and went to the mound and got some key outs in key situations. And you would think that these baseball writers who come up with this list would look at all of the stats that we've talked about tonight to make a justifiable cause to get these guys into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you would think. And with that said, folks, we will turn the page and we will take a break and we will come back and banty more with you about what's happening in the world of sports. We'll take a time out. We'll be back right after this. Did you receive a call or message that mentioned Social Security and demanded immediate action? Did the caller know your social security number or other personal information and tell you that your social security number had been used in connection with the crime? Did you feel worried that your social security number might be suspended, your bank account might be frozen or seized, or you could be arrested? That is not the Social Security Administration. Social Security will not threaten you, demand your personal information or instant payment, email or text you pictures or documents, or use a real government official's name to gain your trust. Social Security does not accept payments by gift card, prepaid debit card, internet currency, or by mailing cash. Criminals use these forms of payment because they are hard to trace. Do not be fooled. Hang up. Ignore them. Report this criminal activity to the Social Security Administration Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. And welcome back to the Sports Buzz. Kevin Wolf and Andy Loigu coming to you live on Clubhouse and Twitter spaces over the worldwide internet. And we make it available for podcast playback through Spotify, Google, or Apple, or wherever you go for your daily audio craving as we come to you live on this Friday, January 27th, the year 2023, from the great state of New Jersey. And Andy, why don't we take a trip down memory lane as 50 years ago today we witnessed well 50 years ago today the super bowl was already over the uh, 1973 super bowl was on january 14th that's when miami completed its undefeated season with a 14 to 7 win over the washington redskins and uh, we can say redskins when we're talking about the past because that's what they were called back in 1973 and uh, the game was in the Los Angeles Coliseum, where they it's a historic stadium, but it won't see any Super Bowls again in the future just because of its age. Uh, University of Southern California still plays there. But some interesting tidbits about that Super Bowl were that the winning players share, uh, you know, the bonus money yes. that comes with being on the Super Bowl winning team, was $15,000 in uh, 1973. I mean, what's it up to now? It's got to be something astronomical. 
Another interesting thing in the big picture perspective was that as they played Super Bowls in January in those days, because you just had a smaller field of playoff teams, the first Super Bowl to be played in February was in 2002, which was when the New England Patriots won their first one over the St. Louis Rams. And uh, that was the first February Super Bowl ever. And uh, that's an interesting little thing to, to look back at, too, and in the 1973 playoffs there... Sorry to interrupt. If you win a Super Bowl now, you get a $150,000 share of it. There you go. That, that tells you about the uh, increase in the big moneyness of the Super Bowl there. But it was interesting. As Miami uh, went into the 73, you know, January 73 playoffs. They had to play the Cleveland Browns in the first round, and they beat them 20-14. to 14. And then for the AFC Championship, they played the Pittsburgh Steelers, who were just an uh, emerging team in those days. Pittsburgh, at that time, was not the glory team that the Steelers are now, where you have legions of Steeler fans because they've watched them win those six Super Bowls and everything. Pittsburgh had not yet won a Super Bowl. They had not won anything for 40 years going into 1973, but... Just the fact that they were in the playoffs to begin with in 73 made some people pay attention that, hey, this may be a team of the future, and they did turn out to be. You know, the Pittsburgh Steelers by 73, they had Terry Bradshaw there, and they had Franco Harris, and they had Mean Joe Green, and uh, they had already built a nucleus of that team, but their big days of winning were still ahead of them. But anyway, for the AFC Championship, the uh, Miami Dolphins beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 21-17. Now, Miami, they went undefeated, and uh, their defense, uh, they were like a zone defense, and uh, Don Shula managed the games very well, but they're not especially high-scoring, and they uh, held uh, the defenses to low scores. Miami's scores in those days were, were pretty low. They won this Super Bowl 14-7. to The MVP and, uh, was Jake Scott, a safety. One of the funniest plays in football history occurred in that Super Bowl when the Dolphins were leading 14 to nothing, and they were going for a field goal to try to kind of put the game out of reach and make it 17 to nothing. And uh, there was a bad snap, and Jarrow uh, Yerpremian, who was this uh, field goal kicker from Cyprus, uh, I wonder how many younger fans remember Jarrow Yerpremian. <laughs> he, he spoke with an accent, and uh, he really did not looked like a football player. He just went in there. He, in fact, he used to say a funny line he used to say on TV, I kick a touchdown. <laughs> I kick a touchdown. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyhow, he, he, tried to, he tried to scoop up the ball uh, and, and throw a pass. And he threw the most awful-looking pass in the history of the NFL. The pass just went straight up and down. It, it only went up about five feet in the air and uh, – and Dick Bass of Washington grabbed that ball, and he he ran the other way for a touchdown. And instead of seventeen nothing, now all of a sudden it's fourteen to seven. It's a game. That was the only touchdown Washington got in that game was the return on that crazy play. And uh, Larry Zonka told a funny story on NFL Films, where um, Gary Yepremian had just applied for citizenship, and he used Don Shula for a reference. Zonka said he'd never seen Don Shula as angry as he was uh, over that play because he had no business trying to throw a pass. 
Uh, just, just, just pick the ball up and fall down on the ground and just, you know, <laughs> just let that be it. Uh, but Zonka said, well, um, Don Shula had just given him a reference uh, for citizenship. And he says, uh, you know, if, if Shula was uh, a person who stayed angry, uh, uh, the Premier would have just been sent on a boat back to Cyprus. <laughs> I want to give you another interesting tidbit, Andy. Do you know what the average cost right now for a 30-second commercial is for an ad to run during a Super Bowl game? Oh, it's got to be millions, right? $7 million is the cost currently from the 2022 Super Bowl between the Rams and the Bengals to run a 30-second ad. Back then, in 1973... The cost for a Super Bowl ad was $88,000 for a 30-second ad. Now it's up to $7 million 50 years later. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and the cost of tickets, too, for the average fan. I can relate. Uh, I've been to the uh, World Series in baseball as a ticket-buying fan in uh, 1983, the Phillies are in the World Series, and I got a ticket for $25. And it was a pretty good seat, too. It was in the uh, lower level. And in 1970, down in Baltimore, I got World Series tickets for $10. That's face value uh, on the ticket, you know. And uh, and now uh, people are paying hundreds, thousands of dollars for, uh, for World Series And that's tickets. why when you look at the Super Bowl, Andy, you don't only have to be a sports junkie or an NFL fan or an avid football guy to hone in on this game. This is a day for celebration. This is a party day. This is a day for gathering. This is a holiday in many households where people won't even watch an 18-week season or watch an ounce of football in a year, but when the Super Bowl comes, they're all around the television set. They may not respectively be rooting in the game, but they may have some money tied to the game. They may be in different brackets, the number brackets where you can win money for the score at the end of a respective quarter. So this game has become so much more than just a love of football type of affair. It has become a huge spectacle to a point where the NFL looks at it as the biggest money draw out of the entire year for any sport. They feast on this game, the NFL, and the financial money that's involved year in and year out to not only partake in this game, but to get this game on the air and all the festivities and the host city and everything is astronomical. Yeah, as far as the Super Bowl becoming like a... Uh national holiday type of thing. Uh, it didn't take very long for it to become a, a very special day in the hearts of a, all Americans, casual fan or, or hardcore fan alike. Now, the first two Super Bowls didn't get that much national uh, national excitement, I guess. Attention. You would say, uh, yeah, attention uh, on the part of uh, ordinary people. And certainly the sports fans are into it. Uh, but after the AFL won one, after the third one, you know, that's that's the Jets' place in history there where they where they made the Super Bowl the Super Bowl. 
by by just showing the world that this can be a competitive game because the first two games, you know, the Green Bay Packers won blowouts there and they weren't really much to watch. But uh, by the time uh, you got to uh, seven Super Bowls, people were starting to have Super Bowl parties and getting together. And But an interesting thing about the Super Bowls is each year it did become a bigger and bigger thing. Super Bowl was still played fairly early in the day, usually like 1 o'clock in the city that you're playing. Like if it was in California, you'd get it at 4 o'clock in the east. And, uh, you know, basically it was a 1 o'clock start in the time zone that it was being played. But then in uh, January 1978, that was like the first Super Bowl that they started at 6 p.m. Before that, the Super Bowl was always over by uh, 6 or 7 o'clock, depending on what time zone it started. And it was a day game. You know, it was a Sunday afternoon game. Uh, but ever since uh, 1978, when it was Dallas and Denver, and Dallas, Dallas won that one in New Orleans, they've all been uh, late games. Uh, you know, the Super Bowl, especially the long halftimes and everything, that doesn't end until after 10 o'clock usually. I remember the year they had the power failure when it was Baltimore, San Francisco. Yes. I remember they couldn't start the second half. That was in New Orleans. Wasn't that in New Orleans Orleans. at the Superdome? Yeah, at the Superdome. That was after a Beyonce concert. And and do you know, Andy, when you think of the Super Bowl, do you know that it didn't get its name till the third Super Bowl was played and Lamar Hunt was the guy who gave the name the Super Bowl to the big game now that we yeah. watch year in and year out? And he called it the Super Bowl and it stuck in his head when the league was looking for a less cumbersome name for the event. The cool thing was that Super Bowl three was the first time it actually appeared on the field uh, as the Super Bowl and appeared on the tickets. Although before the first one, Kansas City and Green Bay, uh, the TV promotions were calling it the Super Bowl. You know, watch the Super Bowl Sunday at 4 p.m. You know, the TV media people were calling it the Super Bowl, but the NFL itself officially wasn't calling it the Super Bowl yet. They didn't do that until uh, Super Bowl three. The NFL can be pretty anal with some some of the things that uh, they they consider important. Like a lot of people, uh, if they're doing ads, like they've got a restaurant, they want people to come over to their restaurant for a big Super Bowl party. Uh, I remember talking with Russ Long about this at WRNJ in Hackestown. Uh, And Russ said they were prohibited by the NFL from calling it uh, the Super Bowl when it was tied into an advertiser who was going to Yeah, you got to call it the big game. You have to call it the big game, yeah. In fact, I saw Wendy's recently. Uh, you know, Wendy's has this product called the Biggie Bag, and uh, they're like saying, "Enjoy a Biggie Bag with the Biggie Game." <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you know what else is interesting, Andy? Like when the AFC Championship winner wins, you have the Lamar Hunt Trophy. When the NFC Championship winner wins, you have the George Hallis Trophy, and the right. George Hallis Trophy is awarded to that member of the team of the NFC because he was the charter member of the league at the time the name was given. And I've heard uh, Lamar Hunt uh, on one of the NFL films uh, it was, that they did about the beginning of the Super Bowl. Lamar Hunt said his kids uh, used to play with this uh, hard rubber ball called the Super Bowl. It used to be a toy. You know, you'd throw it hard against the ground and it would bounce over a house you know, this concentrated rubber, and that was called the Super Bowl. 
And so Lamar Hunt uh, saw this kid, his, his own kids playing the Super Bowl, and he thought, boy, that'd be a good name for the ultimate uh, game in the NFL, the Super Bowl. And uh, that's the way he told the story on NFL Films, that the inspiration for that came from his kids playing with a Super Bowl. <laughs> the cheapest ticket, Andy, to attend the Super Bowl in 2022 was $6,600, and that's nosebleed seats. Yeah, that's crazy, crazy, crazy. It really is. According to NFL Ticket Exchange, the cheapest 2022 Super Bowl ticket was approximately $6,600 to attend the game in Los Angeles, California. I'll tell you, not only is the game a spectacle, but the events leading up to it are even more of a spectacle because you have the different media sessions and they have all these different games for the kids and and families to go and enjoy and everything it's really an all out event for the NFL well they have uh, the Super Bowl as an event for an, an entire week leading up to the Super Bowl in the host city you know they have all they all kinds of things going on i was actually part of it when when they had the Super Bowl in New Jersey, the yes. uh, Denver Broncos and Seattle. I was on the Super Bowl host committee, and I was the trivia guy. I, uh, we actually had a uh, party, and uh, I was uh, dishing out uh, trivia questions and prizes, you know, autographed football yes. and things like that, and jerseys for the, for the winners. I had the honor of uh, coming up with these uh, Super Bowl questions. <laughs> I remember back in the day during that Super Bowl, I was working in New York for a commercial radio station and my boss actually gave me a credential and he said, listen, you've never experienced this before, so I'm going to give you a credential. I want you to go to the Sheridan in Midtown, go to Radio Row and enjoy yourself for a few hours. So I went to Radio Row and I was talking to Steve Mariucci of NFL Network and Michael Irvin and Rich Iason and Mad Dog was there getting ready to do his Sirius XM show. And to this day, I have a picture of me and Mad Dog from Radio Row on my phone. But I'll tell you, the interesting scenario with the Super Bowl in New York was a lot of the media events were in the city where a lot of the other events for the fans were in New Jersey at MetLife Stadium. Yeah. So there was a ton of controversy that year during that Super Bowl because a lot of the people doing Radio Row couldn't necessarily attend some of the dinners or events that they would normally attend at another place. From the Radio Row side of it, a lot of the media attendants from the respective stations across the country and a lot of the journalists were very upset with the way that was handled because they felt they were left out of a lot of the other traditional stuff they would do. Yeah, I was, uh, I was in New Jersey and uh, it was the night before the Super Bowl and it was billed as the, the official uh, Super Bowl party there. I got to talk to Boomer Esiason and Mike Golick there, but there were a lot of other people who couldn't, uh, couldn't get there. With that said, we're going to step aside for a break. When we come back, we're going to give our picks for the conference round of the NFL postseason. I also want to mention a sad passing from a broadcasting perspective, Billy Packer, 
the voice behind college basketball, passed away last night at the age of 82. And when you talk about college basketball and you talk about an icon and you talk about tournament play, Billy Packer was definitely the face behind that. And we will discuss that right after these messages. Hi, I'm Fuad Reves. I'm a home builder. And I have a question for all of you out there who are building your dream home. Are you making plans so your home will have healthier indoor air? It's an important question because there's a deadly invisible radioactive gas that can seep into homes from underground. It's radon gas. And when you breathe it in, it can cause lung cancer. Among non-smokers, radon is the number one cause of lung cancer. The good news is that it's simple to build a home so radon is not a problem. Building your home radon resistant is a good, inexpensive way to stop radon from entering your home. Any builder can do it. So protect your family, talk to your builder, tell them you want a healthier, safer dream house. You'll have better dreams. Learn more. Visit the EPA at epa.gov radon. That's epa.gov radon. This public service announcement is brought to you by the EPA, who does not endorse this particular builder or any other commercial enterprise. After I came home from Iraq, I could still hear the booms. Makes it hard to be a good mom. As America's veterans face challenges, DAV is there. I'm Naomi Mathis, Air Force veteran. DAV helps veterans get the benefits they've earned. Thanks to DAV, I was able to begin to heal. With the right support, more veterans can reach victories great and small. My victory is being able to be here for my children. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. And welcome back to the Sports Buzz. Kevin Wolf and Andy Loigu coming to you live on the World Wide Web from the great state of New Jersey as we present to you episode 14 on this Friday, January 27th, the year 2023, as we come to you live and local from the great state of New Jersey. A quick look at the scoreboard before we get back into some sports banter. On the NHL side of things, the New York Rangers ended up being victorious tonight as they beat the Vegas Golden Knights 4-1. to The Islanders defeated the Detroit Red Wings 2-0 and the Devils are all squared with the Dallas Stars at 2-2 all tied up at the end of of the second period. So some sad news last night, Andy, as legendary Hall of Fame broadcaster sadly passed away, and that is Billy Packer at the age of 82. When you talk about college basketball and you talk about the tournament and you talk about all the great televised broadcast over the years, one name that comes to mind is Billy Packer as he was an institution within the collegiate sport as he handed the baton off in 2008 when he decided to retire after that final game of that championship against Arizona. I believe it was Arizona and Kansas in that championship. Yeah. yeah, in that championship game. And that was the final game he did on CBS. And believe it or not, all of the reports uh, I was hearing today and some of the stories I read said that after he retired, he really started distancing himself from the sport. He didn't watch it on a daily basis. He really didn't 
hone in on it on a regular basis. But when you talk about Billy Packer, Andy, you talk about a true gem on the broadcasting side of the business. He broadcasted in 34 straight Final Four games, Andy. Some of his most notable broadcasts he did was with Jim Nance, Dick Emberg, and Al McGuire. And he is noted and coined for some of the most memorable moments in the sport. Like in 2007, he referred to uh, Simon Says for the championship after Miles Simon led Arizona to the 1997 National title, Simon Says, was a big memory that many remember Billy Packer for in the 1997 championship title game. Yeah, Simon Says championship. Good old Billy Packer. I remember in 2004, I was a junior in high school, and a friend of mine at the time had tickets to the open session for the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight that was at the IZOD Center in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And she called me up one day and she said, why don't we go to the open session and see some of the teams practicing? And one of the teams there was the Oklahoma State Cowboys with Eddie Sutton. They allowed you to roam freely along the sections where the different seats were, where you could watch these players practice. There wasn't tight security for an event like this back then. And I remember walking down to the media area where Billy Packer and Jim Nance were sitting and they were discussing the different teams and everything. And I remember Eddie Sutton, the Oklahoma State Cowboys head coach at the time, was talking to them about the different type of style of play that he was going to use against the Tar Heels and some of the other respective teams. I think the St. Joseph's Hawks at the time were in that particular bracket that was being played at the IZOD Center. And I looked over and Jim Nance looked over and said, who are you? And I said, my name is Kevin Wolf. I'm an aspiring broadcaster. I'm a junior in high school. And Billy Packer started talking to me about the broadcasting business and everything. And the fact that he took time out of his busy schedule to take 10 minutes next to Jim Nance to talk to me about broadcasting was a memory, Andy, that I'll never forget. And the next day I get a phone call. My picture was on the back page of the Daily News with Billy Packer and Jim Nance talking to Oklahoma State Cowboys head coach. Eddie Sutton, as I'm in the back, leaning over the railing, watching them talk to him, my picture was in the back of the Daily News in 2004. That's cool. And Eddie Sutton was a great uh, Hall of Fame basketball coach. Yes, he was. And back then, his Oklahoma State Cowboys were making a really deep run in the NCAA tournament. And the fact that he was talking game with Billy Packer and Jim Nance with the different types of... um, Uh, plays he was going to use in the game was just fascinating and to stand there next to two top broadcasters who you listen to on a daily basis on the television set and have them give you advice on broadcasting was really just a memory I'll never forget and then to see it in the back page of the daily news was was just crazy as I couldn't believe it but it was a great memory you know he did every final four from 75 to 2008 That's a lot of Final Fours. When you think of Dick Vitale or you think of Billy Packer, Andy, which one do you think has left more of an imprint on the sport from a broadcasting perspective? 
Well, Vital, uh, he had a style of his own, but uh, I think Billy Packer, uh, you know, did, he was just an ultimate professional, really. He, uh, Vital uh, had his stick, he had his style. Oh, he's, he's a PT beer, baby. He's awesome, baby. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean uh, yeah, people enjoyed that. Billy Packer was uh, the the respected voice of, uh, you know, without all the emotion and all the craziness. He just gave you a good broadcast. He was also a great athlete as he played for the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. He led them to their first Final Four appearance in 62, and he led them to three ACC titles also when he played for the Wake Forest Demon Deacons, where he was named All-ACC Player of the Year in 1961 and 1962. So not only did Billy Packer leave his mark on broadcasting, he left his mark as a player in the ACC for the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. The uh, ACC tournament, that was a -a one-of-a-kind thing. The ACC in those days and even into the 1970s was the only conference uh, that held a postseason tournament uh, and with the winner to go to the NCAA. And you didn't have these at-large bids in those days. You only had about a 25-team tournament, and you had to win a conference to get into the tournament. And uh, I think they started loosening that up after 1974, when in 1974, the ACC tournament final was number one Wake Forest against number two Maryland. The number one and two teams in the nation were playing each other for the ACC championship, and the loser would not go to the NCAA tournament. <laughs> that got people thinking, well, maybe we should you know, uh, have second or third place teams getting in the NCAA if they're in a real good league or whatever. But uh, there was so much pressure on that ACC tournament. Your your whole season could go bye-bye if you didn't win that tournament. So when uh, Billy Packer was, uh, you know, playing in those uh, ACC tournaments, uh, those are pressure games. You had to win the tournament. It, now, you know, a lot of these teams, they know where they stand in terms of all these power ratings and everything, and they go into the ACC tournament, and they, they know whether they're in or out. You may have a low-seeded team who has to win the tournament to get in, but uh, you know the top four or five teams in a, in a good league where there's a rated teams, uh, they know they're getting in when they play that conference tournament. And sometimes uh, I've seen even Duke didn't really make an effort to win. And the sometimes they tournament. don't go out there and prevail in the conference tournament if they know they're getting yeah. into the NCAA because they want a little break before yeah. the tournament starts to give their players some rest and to get ready for a competitive four days back-to-back, back-to-back on the basketball court in yeah, the one-and-done situation. Into, yeah, you know you're going into the tournament, so you don't really have to put out with everything you got. Uh, in, in those games, uh, if you just win a round or two and you make it to the uh, Elite Eight or Final Four of your conference tournament, they know they're in. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, the ACC tournament is not today what it was back then when everything was riding on it. And they're the only conference in the nation doing it. So the, the, the eyes of the nation were always focused on those last couple of games in the ACC tournament because... You had nationally ranked teams, and every year a highly ranked 
team would not make the tournament because they didn't win that ACC tournament. Last night, we received sad news that legendary broadcaster and color analyst for college basketball, Billy Packer, sadly passed away at the age of 82. And now we will shift gears and we will give you our weekly NFL picks in a league where they play for pay as I went one in one Last week, I took the two Sunday games. I lost because I had Dallas beating San Francisco, but I won because I had the Bengals over the Bills. And Andy, what does he do? He just continues to win. He went 2-0 and as he had the Chiefs over the Jaguars, and he had his beloved Eagles beating the New York Giants. So this week, we will both pick each game. We will give our take on the AFC and NFC matchups. And with that said, I will cue the music, and we will get ready for our picks for Conference Championship Sunday in a league where they play for pay. All right, folks, so our first game Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock is the Fox game between the Eagles and the San Francisco 49ers in the battle for who can get to Glendale, Arizona and represent the NFC. And listen, the Eagles are at home. They were 14-3 and all year. They're coming off of a huge victory and a big statement win at being the NFC's best, beating the New York Giants 38-7 last Saturday night. And they've done it all with their defense, with their ground and pound attack, with their receiving core, and with their quarterback, Jalen Hurts. However, they will have a tougher task this week as they take on a San Francisco 49ers team that will be readily prepared and raring to go for 60 minutes on the football field. And I think with the 49ers, it's really going to come down to Brock Purdy. If Brock Purdy can continue the momentum he has, and if he can continue the throwing accuracy, and if he can find a way to solve a tough Eagles defense with the help of his offensive line, then I think he could go out there and get the 49ers in to a Super Bowl. But really, the home field in Philadelphia, the crowd behind their back, the Eagles being two-and-a-half-point favorites, I think the teams are evenly matched, but I think the Eagles could be a tiny bit far superior, and therefore I give them an edge in this game. I just think they're going to find a way to make a big play late when they need points on the board to win this game. Give me the Eagles 31, the 49ers 27. That's our NFC Championship game for game number one on Sunday. And game number two is another compelling matchup as the Cincinnati Bengals, for the first time in franchise history, look to get to -to back-to-back Super Bowls. But they'll have to go through Arrowhead Stadium and beat Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes for a fourth consecutive time to do that against the Chiefs team... That is going to be tough. The biggest question mark for the Chiefs is going to be the ankle sprain 
with Patrick Mahomes? Is he going to be fully healed? Is he going to be ready to go? And is he going to be able to put pressure on that ankle and lead the Chiefs offense to some big plays in this game and get them in to a Super Bowl? This game is going to be close. Joe Burrow would worry me. The Bengals' defense has been playing fantastic football of late. The biggest weakness for the Bengals is their offensive line. If their offensive line can't hold up and protect the quarterback in this game, I think the Chiefs will have a very good shot at advancing to a Super Bowl. But if Burrow comes out and carves up that Chief defense the way he did against the Bills, it'll be a tough day for Kansas City. The fact that Andy Reid has lost three in a row to the Bengals tells me that he's going to find a way to get a key win here and face his former team in Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. Chiefs 28, Bengals 24, game number two for Championship Sunday. Andy. Okay, I'll start with Eagles game as well. And uh, I I see it. uh, Eagles 24, San Francisco 20. And uh, I think the Eagles' defense is going to be uh, the, the real key here, both with the pass rush and also the fact, in fact that they get a good pass rush uh, without doing all kinds of crazy blitzes. I mean, the, their coverage, uh, Slay and company uh, back there in the secondary, uh, I see them making a couple of pickoffs. There might even be a return for a touchdown, something like that. Uh, I think it's really the Eagles' key to winning would be to uh, put the defensive heat on uh, Purdy just starting right out. Uh, just just come after him, and uh, and he hasn't faced a pass rush like the Eagles yet this year. And uh, that, that could be a key in terms of getting him off of the magic carpet ride that he's been on. Uh, otherwise, uh, these teams, there's very little to choose between these teams. They've got all outstanding players all over the field. Uh, but I think it'll come down to a big play by the Eagles defense. Uh, that'll make the difference here. So I see it as the Eagles 24, San Francisco 20. And I'm being generous given San Francisco the 20 because uh, this Eagles team can really play some shutdown football when they put their mind to it. Uh, now the other game I would love to pick Andy Reid. I mean, I've, I've always uh, liked seeing him be successful at Kansas City because I thought the Eagles never should have let him go. I mean, I think the, uh, the Eagles had one poor season after Andy Reid had been to the uh, NFC Championship game numerous times. He'd been to the Super Bowl. I think there's just some frustration that he hadn't gone all the way, that he, he always led the Eagles close to the top, but uh, always uh, disappointed them by not... Yeah, the old thing, uh, he can't win the big one. Well, guess what? He did win the big one in Kansas City. He's had numerous, numerous uh, successes in in playoffs. And so uh, I have all the respect in the world for Andy Reid. Unfortunately, he's got a quarterback with a high ankle sprain. And I think that does make a difference in the way uh, Mahomes is going to perform. It'll affect the accuracy of his passes, I'm afraid, because he can't plant that foot. And uh, but even considering that, you got to give Cincinnati credit for being one heck of a good football team. I've just been so impressed with the way they play all aspects of the game, and their defensive coverages. I mean, they're like 
mad scientists. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> they're covering everybody. Yeah, the schemes that they're, they're putting together there and uh, discombobulating the opposition are really uh, first rate. Uh, they, they've had great coaching, and Joe Burrow is just as cool as they come uh, and, and, and capable. Uh, confident, capable. He's a leader. And the defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo, Andy, he's done a well of a doing job. A great job. Yeah, he's doing a great job. Uh, even though they are at Kansas City, and Kansas City, just like Philadelphia, it can be hell to go into that place and try to win a game. But uh, I think Cincinnati's just got the, the mojo to, to do this. And so uh, I will call it uh, Cincinnati... Uh, 31 to uh, 27. So I'm going with a Philly Cincy Super Bowl here. Wow. Hey, good pick. So I got the Chiefs and I got the Eagles. You have the Eagles and you have the Bengals. So interesting theater appointment television for Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening as we get ready for conference championship play on the football field as we are down to three games Three games with the big one being Super Bowl 57 on February 12th in Glendale, Arizona. Now we just need to see which team will represent their respective conference to try to hoist up the Lombardi Trophy. With that said, Andy, we'll wrap up this edition of the Sports Buzz. Passionate sports talk for the hardcore fan is our daily motto. He was Andy Loigu. I was Kevin Wolf. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell sports junkies that this is your weekly worldwide internet destination for everything happening in the world of sports. We will be with you next Friday as we have a lull in the NFL season as we get ready for the Super Bowl and we will be live to dissect everything that happens this Sunday in the conference championship games. Good luck to your Philadelphia Eagles, Andy. And we will chat all about it next week here on the Sports Buzz. We will leave you with We Are the Champions and Queen. Adios until next time.